the art of self-reliance is forging your own path, but the path is difficult. Made easier by learning from those who have succeeded in directing their own lives on their own terms. With their help and inspiration, your path to self-reliance moves from dream to reality. And now, here's your host, Dr. Rodney King. Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Art of Self-Reliance podcast. In this episode, I speak to Frank Sobchak. Frank is a PhD candidate in international relations at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy. He has also taught at the U.S. Military Academy at West Point, Tufts University, the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy, and the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. He holds a Bachelor of Science in Military History from West Point and a Master's in Arab Studies from Georgetown University. During his 26-year career in the U.S. Army, he served in various Special Forces assignments, including leading teams in companies in the 5th Special Forces Group, in peace and in wartime, while representing U.S. Special Operations Command as a Congressional Liaison. In this episode, we discuss survival and contingency planning, the importance of being prepared, risk management, and putting it into practice. The art of self-reliance calls you to adventure, to develop your self-protection skills, to learn how to survive no matter where you find yourself, and to thrive amongst life's chaos. All right, so Frank, here's my first question for you. When you hear the word self-reliance, what does that mean to you? So to me, the, the word self-reliance ultimately means that when push comes to shove, you are prepared, that you are ready kind of for any contingency uh, and that you've properly planned and considered ultimate uh, possibilities so that you're ready to deal with it. So that leads in nicely to what we said we were going to talk about. So let's hit on that first topic. Let's talk about contingency planning and the importance of being prepared. Yeah. So to me, you know, I served 26 years in the military, uh, 22 of them in special forces. And, you know, there's a there's an adage in the U.S. military. It's called the five P's. Um, and you probably heard of it before. Probably the British military uses the same. Uh, and they stand for, you know, prior planning prevents piss or performance, um, which means you think about things before you, you know, jump into it. Um, and in particular, within U.S. Army Special Forces, um, we do contingency plan. And of course, because everything has an acronym in the military, the acronym with, within U.S. Army Special Forces is it's called PACE planning. And what that is, is it's uh, basically break it down into different options, kind of a primary, an alternate, a contingency and an emergency. You have plans, multiple plans, so that if your primary plan falls apart, you've got an alternate plan. If that alternate plan falls apart, you've got a contingency plan. And then finally, you know, if that contingency plan has even collapsed, you've got an emergency plan where that if everything else has, can I say hell? Okay, if everything else has gone to hell, you know, that you've, you've still got a plan that, you know, you can survive on. Always when I'm thinking about this is that oftentimes people that would be listening to this are not necessarily going to be coming from the military or law enforcement or have that kind of background. So I guess always the thing that's in the back of my mind is how do we apply this? Like if, if I'm the everyday person, 
how am I going to apply this and where should I apply it? I mean, one of the most common things I always think about is when people are traveling, right? Is that people tend to travel all over the world, but they don't give it a second notice about, you know, maybe where they're going to isn't a great spot, or maybe there are things on the ground that they should know about, but then they leave it to fortune and get on the ground and suddenly something happens and then they have no planning. Yeah. So I think, you know, ultimately to me, uh, and, and again, I mean, you know, we, we all are a product of our past. And so me, you know, actually some total, I spent 31 years in uniform, including my four years as a cadet. I actually did an exchange with RMA Sandhurst. I've done exchanges with fourth brigade. Um, so, uh, during that time, you know, one of the things that, that they kind of taught us also was when to kind of apply this contingency planning is, you can look at it kind of like from a risk assessment kind of perspective. And you look at it from the perspective of, of kind of two gauges. One gauge being, okay, how likely is this bad or dangerous event likely to happen? If it's kind of a low, you know, kind of order of you know, feasibility of happening, then that adapts your planning. Um, now, the second gauge to kind of look at, and it's almost like you're looking at it like a scale, like a graph. Um, because the two interact with one of with one another. The other component is um, how dangerous is that event? So that if you have a low order, you know, of happening event, but that event could be catastrophic, meaning like you're dead, um, you should probably plan for it. Um, whereas one of the events that is low priority of happening and then low injury, well, that's something you might not have to worry about. Um, but, you know, ultimately when you put those together, particularly if you're traveling, you know, again, it does still move back to the, the kind of same original concept of prior planning, know where you're going, do some research, you know, and then kind of from there, then formulate a plan based on what are the most likely risks and the most dangerous risks that you're going to encounter. I think for a lot of people, you know, they just want to go away. If we're just talking, we use it as an example, right? I'm going on holiday. I just want to have fun. And in some sense, they think that that takes a little bit of the fun away from it, that you kind of think in that way. And there's this, I guess, this uh, gut reaction against the sense that, oh, I'm just being totally paranoid. So I, I mean, I think there's, there's ways to counter that. And what I do is I pack a go bag, um, even if I'm going with my family. Um, and so that go bag, uh, and it's not a go bag in terms of like, I've got to evac an area, but it's like a bag that I'm taking with me on travel, like literally anywhere. And for example, with my kids, I have a small bag of all like over the counter meds that, and a thermometer and like basic stuff that, you know, if, if they're dehydrated or if they're throwing up or any other, you know, event, it's, it's already packed. Like, I don't even have to, like, think about it. I grab the bag, I put it into my suitcase, and I'm done. And the same thing kind of with, you know, my wife and myself is I have a small bag. And, and in this case, I have some prescription meds also kind of for everyone, particularly if I'm going somewhere in, within the developing world. Um, I'll probably have some, you know, either, you know, uh, antibiotic or other, you know, kind of care available, depending on, again, what is available locally? What have I planned for? What, you know, when I'm my research, when I did my research, you know, what 
what will I have to rely on myself? So when you're thinking about, I, I kind of put them under this umbrella of primal skills, right? Things that people should be working on, should be developing. What comes to mind for you? Like what are the skills that just, you know, the everyday person should be spending some time on developing? As for myself, for example, my background specifically and what I'm most known for is in the defensive tactics world. So I, I'm, I'm a big advocate, of course, that people need to know how to use their body in a way to protect themselves because it's something that you have with you all the time, which is your body. You don't need any equipment. You don't need anything else, but it's a primal skill. And it's something that needs to be developed just in case you do get into a situation that you are able to trust yourself in order to get yourself out of that, out of that bad spot. For sure. So I agree with that also. And I would, you know, so the, for most people, and I think some people, uh, some people, you know, could still definitely, uh, I'd say the vast majority of people could benefit from uh, hand-to-hand or, you know, individual fighting technique skills um, to be able to defend themselves, to be able to defend and protect others. Um, I think there's great utility. Um, that said, I to be very blunt and honest, um, you know, I think there's, a, there's also a percentage of the population that probably could not, that won't that we have some limited skills in that area um then there's also a percentage of the population that probably just won't go there that they won't invest the time in it. um at the lower level i think the thing that a lot of people can, can could grasp onto is you know basic self-care and first aid um and those are things i think really that like literally anyone could do right i mean you don't you don't have to be able to do you know a, a Cricothiotomy, like do it, do break something, you know, you'd be like, that's, that's not necessary, but other basic skills, you know, akin to like the Boy Scouts here in the United States. And I forget what it's called in the UK. Um, is it called Boy Scouts or is it called Scouts or something? I think it's probably the Scouts. Yeah, I'm not really I sure because I come, I mean, I'm from South Africa, so we oh, still, okay. we still used to call it their Sorry. Boy Scouts. Right. right? <laughs> so, uh, so, you know, on those kind of, uh, general concepts um i think like basic first aid of, of akin to what's being taught in in scouts is something that i think is has utility um whether it's you know applying uh, a field dressing a presser dressing you know even tourniquets i think you the opportunities for injury are abound and i'll give you just a couple occurrences uh um Oh, knowing CPR is another one. Um, I've had to perform CPR twice in my life um, in non-combat environments. Just once uh, I was on my honeymoon. Um, and then the other time I was commuting, bike commuting, um, and saw someone who had collapsed. Um, so having those basic skills of CPR, um, you know, how to do some basic first aid, I think is really stuff that like literally anyone could do. Um, beyond that, I do. I agree with you. I'm, a, I'm definitely a firm advocate in being able to defend yourself um, with your, you know, with your body. Yeah. And I guess also maybe we can just expand that. So when I say defensive tactics, obviously, the I guess the extreme version of that would be me applying my physical skill sets. But there's all of the stuff that you were talking about, which is equally important. You know, you talked about the five P's. You talked about pace. Most people don't know that and most people don't apply that 
So one of the things that I would always advocate to people is that wherever possible, you don't actually want to get into a physical altercation with anybody. And if you can find your way out and find a way out of it using verbal jujitsu or just avoidance, right? That is a win in itself. But I, I'm, I guess for a lot of guys, that's really difficult, right? Because the ego kicks in and they kind of, you know, the bravado and they think that they have to engage with everybody that just looks at them wrong. And they don't really see that as moving away from violence and not engaging it in the first place is actually a greater victory. Because one of the things I tell people all the time, right? You get into a physical altercation with somebody, you have no idea where that's going to go to. So maybe I throw a punch, he picks up a bottle, I find a bladed weapon, he pulls out a firearm. One, thing's, one thing will just go from, from bad to worse, right? So it's not just what I'm not advocating is I'm not just saying, okay, only the physical skill sets. There's also these other things that you've been talking about as well. Yeah. So I totally agree a hundred percent. And, you know, I would throw out that, you know, there's the old adage, you know, uh, never bring a knife to a gunfight. Um, you know, never, you know, go with your fists to a knife fight. Um, because just like you said, you have no idea where it will go. And I'm definitely a huge in favor of, you know, knowing kind of how to de-escalate a situation. Um, it's it, the, the tr There's training that's available for that. Um, it's not hard. I agree with a lot of guys do have issues with it, but I really think it's, it's something that you can train on, you can prepare on, and it, it, it's a much greater victory. Um, I would throw also out that to loop back to kind of like the five P's and contingency planning is that if you've done your homework, you can avoid, in many cases, either locations of potentially danger where you're, you're more, again, kind of on that scale of what is more likely to happen and what is more dangerous to happen. You can avoid locations where it is more dangerous to happen. You can avoid situations where it's more likely to happen, um, you know, whether it be, you know, intoxication or late at night or, you know, by yourself, you know, the certain situations have much greater risk. And if you've planned properly to avoid those situations, you know, you give yourselves a much less likelihood of having to, you know, become physically involved in fighting. Yeah. So Frank, I was just, as you were saying that I want to get your take on this because I've, I've talked to a few people about this and I'm always interested because there's always some nuances that I pick up that somebody else might've not mentioned what is your take on situational awareness? I think you will agree it's probably really important, but how would you define it? And how would you say a person can go about actually developing it? Yeah, so there's two components to it. And I believe very much in situational awareness. And, and I believe that, you know, it, there are two elements to it. One is kind of like active, being actively aware of what your situation is and where you are and what's going on around you. And, you know, it doesn't take 100% of your attention, but just always having, you know, a percentage of your attention directed almost like a radar. Like if you're on a surface warship, your radar is on active. It is, it is you know, you are monitoring what's going on around you. And when something doesn't seem right or when, you know, your attention indicate something is going wrong. That's the second element that I think is important is that your intuition and to, you know, draft into the, the Marvel comics, um, you know, your spidey sense, you know, when you're, you know, your, your intuition and that, you know, 
cold feeling goes up your spine and your hair stands on end, start, learn to trust it, right? Because that's like millions of years of evolution, of winning the evolutionary battle, speaking to you, saying, hey, you know, I want to survive. I want to be continue to be part of the species that continues to promulgate. Um, and learning to be in touch with that intuition and learning to trust it when something says, you know, like, okay, should I go with this person or should I not go with this person? And something is a little, the pit of your stomach or the back of your neck is saying, maybe not a good idea. Um, even though maybe that person is very attractive or very astute or very whatever, um, that intuition, it has served us very well as a species. And it's one of the reasons why we're pretty darn close, if not at the top of the food chain. I noticed that a lot of people don't trust that intuition. And I'm wondering how much of the, the modern world that we live in, where we are no longer, you know, interacting with our intuition on a daily basis plays into that. If I think back to, you know, the, the time when we were hunter gatherers, which was pretty much for most of the time of the human race on the planet. I mean, this modern version of the world is a very, very small part of our history we had to engage our intuition daily. And I think a lot of people are disconnected from it, right? They don't actually really trust it anymore. And they override it with their thinking and they're like, oh, you're just being silly and you shouldn't be thinking that way about this particular person. Uh, one person said uh, in an interview, they were talking about Gavin DeBecker's book on, um, on fear and where he was talking about intuition and just having that ability when you have that sense of saying no to somebody can be very difficult because you don't want to offend them, right? Yeah. So the modern world has actually, you know, over probably the last, I would argue, 60 years or so, has really kind of gone kind of counter to evolution in some ways. And oddly, we've been kind of fortunate. I mean, I could like pontificate on kind of some of the reasons why that has occurred. You know, well, I'll throw this out. I mean, this is going to sound very bizarre, but uh, in in most cases, um, we have avoided, we meaning, you know, large segments of the world, um, we have avoided another global war like World War One, World War II, the Napoleonic conflicts, the, the Mongol hordes, uh, global conflicts, we've managed to avoid. Um, and that pushes down the death toll. It pushes down the number of individuals who are put into a fight or flight, life or death situations. And it you know, it changes, it has an evolutionary impact in that, you know, because we haven't, you know, fortunately had to fight a conflict, some of those survival instincts are not as critical. And honestly, kind of in a Darwinistic sense, you know, people who might have been killed um, live and they, you know, continue along with uh, perhaps, you know, a fewer survival instincts. We, we kind of don't need them as much in the modern world. And, you know, honestly, in many ways, that's great. Um, but in some situations, it doesn't serve as well. Just as you were saying that, I was thinking about this whole thing that we've been talking about, about contingency planning and, and all those elements. I think when people actually apply that, that's where they start opening themselves back up to that intuition, trusting, you know, their spidey sense, as you noted. Because what it does is, and in my experience, is that you don't need to be paranoid about it. 
It just needs to be something that's in the background of your mind. You need to just be aware that that's required and you don't know this environment, for example, that you're in. And it's important to take note of what's happening around you. But as you start doing that more and more and you get into a habit of doing that, that will improve your confidence, right? Yeah. And it becomes second nature. And it's like anything, you know, it's training. Uh, you know, when you've trained yourself, you become more proficient at it and it becomes easier, you know, and therefore you notice things more clearly and easily. You don't have to spend as much time focusing on it. Um, and so that the intuition, you know, again, it's like you said, there are, you know, there's a long span of history that, you know, it kept us from being eaten. Um, and so it's still there, you know, 60 years is not going to change that. Um, and so consequently, all you have to do is kind of, you know, it's like, you know, you, you sharpen it, sharpen those skills and, and they will come back in most cases. So could you give us some examples of that? Like when you, I mean, you know, when you're traveling around and, and just in your everyday life outside of, you know, you mentioned that you have, um, I don't know what you called it. It was like a bug out bag, but not really a bug out bag, but you have, you have that, right? Yeah. Um, what other things do you do? I mean, just, if we just think about the everyday things that people just take for granted, I mean, what would you say that you do doing differently to say that just the normal person on the street? If it's an everyday occurrence, like for example, driving to work, um, some of the situations, so I live in New England, it snows a lot here in the winter, um, you know, it's cold, um, and, you know, every year there are a number of people who, you know, who spin their cars off on the side of the road and freeze to death before aid comes to them, um, or who get stuck and, you know, suffocate when their exhaust pipes have been you know, covered by snow after they've spun off the side of the road. So the things that I kind of, particularly in that kind of scenario, um, you know, in, in general scenarios, I'll always have like you know, a, a small uh, solar blanket that folds up to about fist size. Again, it's like a small aid bag, okay? But a, a really small one. Like we're talking like, you know, uh, six inches by four inch, mm. um, where I've got some basics in there. I've got a, a completely a space blanket, a solar blanket that if there's a casualty or, or myself um, that I can wrap myself into to prevent shock. Um, I've got a little bit of water, a little bit of fluids, you know, for hydration. Uh, if I've got to stay somewhere for a while, um, I've got uh, a small first aid kit, um, you know, a couple bandages of different types, a little bit of something to clean a wound, um, real basic stuff. If in if on the scenarios applied to the winter, in that case, um, I will also have a real blanket, like a full blown blanket. In some cases, if I know that there's snow coming, I've got snow boots. Um, I might even pack a shovel if I know that you know, for example, I've got to be somewhere, um, whether it be for military duty or you know whatever. Um, those are the things I'll do. You know, and, and those are day-to-day, -day, you know, life here in New England. Mm. So that, that's really good because I guess what you're really saying is there, and it, again, it speaks back to everything you've been noting, is that you really need to know your environment, right? And I think that's, that's important. Like, know what your environment is, even if it's just your local environment where you live. 
know what you may have to encounter and have some pre-planning because when shit hits the fan, then you don't have to think about it. And as we know, right, what people tend to do is when they're faced with something that puts them under threat, typically if they haven't done any pre-planning or any training for it, they just freeze. Or people panic, which is even worse. Um, and oftentimes panic can lead to shock, which leads to health issues, and then you're in a death spiral. Um, and so, you know, ultimately, again, the first thing is that five P's is what is your local environment? What is the weather? Um, what, you know, and what are you going to have to contend with? If I was, for example, driving um, in like uh, in the American Southwest in parts of Texas, um, literally you have to plan your gas station to gas station. Um, because if you do not plan appropriately and you drive past the gas station, there's not another gas station for 60, 70 miles um, and or, you know, 100 kilometers or whatever. Um, and you will be really out of luck uh, if, if you fail to do that. Um, so consequently, it's something that's really, really important to like understand. You know, there's a soft imperative. So as in Army Special Forces, we always used to say the first special operations imperative is understand your operational environment. And again, it's kind of linked to that five P's, right? And if your operational environment is you're going to be driving through the desert, well, you might want to have an extra jerry can of fuel. Definitely want to have water. You want to have some sort of potential shade that you're going to create for yourself if you've got to be somewhere for a while. And you're going to have to have a signaling device. And that's the other thing, actually, that I always bring with myself, a flare or whatever. You know, if your car breaks down and it literally is not going to go anywhere, um, you know, and, and you're stuck on the side of the road or not even really on the side of the road where you're partially blocking traffic, you know, you want to have something that's going to signal at night that you're there um, so that you don't get killed. So again, those all, all these elements of power planning prevent your mind from going into panic. And when people are in panic mode, they don't think well, they don't process data, they don't process information, and it can be very dangerous. And there's also something to be said for those baseline survival skills, like knowing how to make a shelter, how to start a fire. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Because again, I think this always comes back to it when I'm talking to people or I'm teaching people. One of the things that I want them to do is to have confidence. When you have confidence, right, then you're in a much better position. And then even though you might be feeling this overwhelming fear or whatever it may be in that moment in time, you're going to be able to manage it more effectively. Exactly. A lot of stress, you know, comes from uncertainty and unknown situation. And if you've been in that situation before and you've been able to light, you know, create a fire on your own multiple times, well, that's not uncertain. You've done it before. It's like, hey, I, you know, I've, uh, this isn't my first rodeo, you know, and I know how to do this. And so consequently, that really sets you up for success. So I'm also definitely a, a strong proponent of all those baseline skills. Um, you know, again, I'll, I'll put a plug in for the scouts, you know, Boy Scouts globally. Um, and, you know, the Boy Scouts are at least actually, I think, globally. Um, you know, they're taking young, young women into it also. Um, you know, I have taught uh, my daughter and my son how to light a fire, um, you know, with, you know, what they can find around them and, and a fire starter. Um, which is also kind of part of the kit that I bring everywhere. 
um, you know, a little bit of laundry lint, you know, soaked in Vaseline with that and you start a fire, you know, in, in the, on top of the monsoon almost. Um, so definitely those are skills I think really that everyone should have. And then like, you know, literally my 10 year old son and 13 year old daughter, they've, they've practiced to do it. Yeah, that's really good because I think like a lot of times, you know, people, they almost have this attitude that bad things are not going to happen to them. Or at least that's what I find in the more civilized, safer places of the planet. And what tends to come up quite a lot is why do I need to change my behavior? It should be okay for me just to traverse the world as I want to, and nobody should interfere with me or want to cause me harm. But unfortunately, and sadly, that is not how it is. And there are bad people in the world that would want to do bad things to you. And to have that kind of attitude of not wanting to change your behavior based on where you are, I think is a very dangerous mindset to have. I agree very much also. Um, And, you know, there are bad people everywhere. Um, And, you know, in some ways, to me, that goes back to that same notion of, you know, much of the world has not had a catastrophic conflict in a long time. Um, you know, if you, for example, you look at Europe, I mean, other than the Balkans, um, Europe has not had a conflict really since World War II, um, a, a major conflict. And that, I mean, it, it affects people's psyche, especially when it's been multiple generations. Um, and it's like you said, they get lulled into the sense of bad things won't happen. And, you know, that's just, uh, it's dangerous because, you know, oftentimes it doesn't even take someone else doing it to you. Frankly, you know, Mother Nature and, you know, I, I recently did a sailing trip from South Florida to Massachusetts, a couple thousand miles. Um Mother Nature will kill you in a heartbeat and not even pause. Not even, no one will, there'll be a blip in history. Um, so never screw with Mother Nature because Mother Nature will kill you better than dead in a heartbeat. Yeah. So when you did that, when you did that trip, I would be interested to, to hear from you what actually came up. Like what did Mother Nature throw at you and what did you find that you had to contend with? So we were, so there was really only two kind of instances uh, that we had to contend with. Um, We, you know, so we were, and again, okay, so just the context, 36 foot sailboat, um, we were about 140 miles offshore. Um, So, you know, for a small boat like that, it's it's not, it's not a huge deal, but it's, you know, for me, I'm going to plan for something like that because, you know, even for a Coast Guard helicopter, uh, from spin up, you've got to survive on your own for two or three hours at a minimum and most likely six to eight. Um, so the things that, uh, got thrown at us, uh, we had a storm. I mean, it, it was okay. Uh, you know, we had, you know, some of the crew members, so I'd had friends who had kind of come along, uh, you know, one crew member, um, was sick throwing up. He was actually, doing pretty good though he had like planned he had some meds to kind of like help offset it um so he was pretty squared away the uh another we got i mean we got bounced around a decent amount um uh, one of the guys cracked a rib or actually correction two ribs 
Um, and then just line lock. Um, so to get to put it in context, um, I'm an experienced sailor, but I'm not an experienced sailor who's going to be taking, you know, like four or five, six days offshore um, where you're, you know, 140 miles offshore. Um, that's not in my comfort zone. So I actually hired a, a professional captain um, who had 200,000 sailing miles to kind of captain the boat to kind of tell us what to do and to be able to like, you know, it's again, it's like you're talked about experience. Someone with 200,000 sailing miles has seen everything. It's your grizzled, you know, war veteran who's been through three conflicts and seen everything twice. Um, and so they've got this vast, you know, reservoir of knowledge to kind of draw upon um, when, like you said before, the shit hits the fan. Well, uh, we were, we're like a hundred miles offshore, uh, and he started urinating blood. Um, and kind of came incapacitated. Um, and so we mostly had to take over, had to kind of make some decisions. Um, I had also, again, prior planning prevents his poor performance. Um, I had a, you know, a very well-developed first aid kit. Uh, I had IV fluids. I had an AED. I had everything, you know, for tourniquets, burns, you name it. Uh, I had multiple meds. Um, I also had um, multiple means of communication offshore, um, such as a satellite phone and a couple of Garmin um, in reaches, which again, plug for them. They're pretty awesome because you can text with them via satellite. Uh, and they're all satellite capable. So you don't have to be within VHF or HF range. Uh, and I had a 24 hour number to a friend of mine who was a special forces medic, um, who are basically almost the equivalent of trauma surgeons. And I was able to call him up and he answered on the second ring. Um, and so we were kind of able to, um, in a situation that could have been highly stressful, um, we were able to get comms with someone because we had properly planned, um, and assess and make good decisions. And everyone ended up, you know, we sailed into shore, um, and got people to the appropriate level of care. So then after that, did you carry on with the trip? Because I mean, was that right in the beginning of the trip? Right? We did. Okay. Uh, so that was in North Carolina. It was about halfway up. Um, and, uh, uh, basically had to evacuate two members of the crew that left us with two people. Uh, we were not in the best conditions, uh, just with two people to kind of try to do a trip on our own. We did go one more day, uh, and then we had some mechanical issues with the boat <laughs> and long story there. Um, but you know, a, uh, there's no such thing as a free boat, um, even when it's coming from your dad. Uh, and, uh, so we all, so we basically had to pause, uh, had a new, uh, delivery captain come in. Um, and, uh, my son, my eight, he was 18 then, uh, flew in. Um, and so we, uh, my one other friend had to fly back. Um, cause he ran out of time uh, on his vacation from work. 
Um, and, and so three of us continued on um, from North Carolina to Massachusetts. Second half. Of the world. Wow, that's amazing. Well, at least you made it to the end, right? What did it feel like once you got to the end after that? It was, it felt great. <laughs> like it had been, you know, pretty stressful. Uh, you know, it's also, it, it, stress changes when you have people that you care very much, you know, with you or when you're in charge or you feel like you're in charge, even if you're not the delivery captain, you know, you're the owner and the boat, you know, it's, you know, everyone's counting on you to have made the right planning so that, you know, when things go wrong, that everyone survives. Um, and, you know, these were army buddies, some of them that I'd been to war with. Uh, and then, you know, obviously my son was there for the second half of the voyage. Um, and so, yeah. Um, yeah. That, I mean, that changes the dynamics for sure, as, as you note. So one of the things I wanted to chat to you about a little bit off script was that I noticed that you're doing your PhD. So somebody that's just finished theirs recently, I'm always interested to speak to another I don't know if you'd consider yourself an academic. I didn't consider myself an academic. I have, an, I have an interesting story there, but that's a long one. But bottom line was I never finished high school. So it was kind of an interesting thing for me to go through that process. So one, I mean, I'm interested to know what are you actually pursuing and how far are you in and how are you finding it? Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting. Um, so I'm the first person on my dad's side uh, to ever finish college. Um, you know, my dad, I mean, he, he used the GI bill after world war two, he was drafted in world war two, GI bill, he didn't finish college. Um, but in many ways, like it's weird, you know, the world has changed and in some ways not for the better. Um, because like my dad, uh, he, he went, he, he did not have a college degree, but he ended up working, uh, for Stuart Warner as an electrical engineer without a degree. And he got 12 patents. And, I, you know, in this, the modern world, we've become so enamored with kind of bells and whistles that, and stamps and degrees and whatever, that sometimes I think we lose sight of what's really important. Um, and so I guess, do I consider myself an academic and what am I studying? So I'm studying uh, international relations, specifically security studies. Um, and I don't know. I mean, I... Uh, I, I guess I do. Um, I've always been kind of a weird duck. Um, so I've always, like, I, I'm always carrying a book somewhere where I'm going. Um, like, I was in Iraq as, you know, company commander, uh, commanding a couple special forces teams in Nineveh province in 05. Um, and, you know, I go to meetings and I have a book that I was just reading, you know, like a history book or academic book or whatever. Um, and it was funny, like, my nickname, you know, everyone gets nicknames in the military. And so my nickname was the professor. Um, <laughs> uh, it was funny, you know, it's always like considered the smart one. So in our military, uh, in special forces, you have to go to this quote school uh, called survival, evasion, resistance, and escape. And part of it is you get at the end of it, you get captured and you go through a kind of a prisoner of war camp for a couple of days. Um, and uh, in it, one of the kind of standard things that you always have to deal with is they put some, some, you're all war criminals. So they put you on trial. So they have to select a, a lawyer. So of course, you know, they're like, okay, well, we're going to select, you know, him to be, the, you know, he's going to be a war criminal. They're putting him on trial. 
And they're like, you must select a, you know, a lawyer. So then everyone like looks around and, and kind of looks at me and it's like, he's our lawyer. <laughs> and so just as a side note, you don't want me to defend you because I'm 0 for 1 and my client got executed, um, you know, mock executed. Um, but so, yeah, I guess I got, I've always been kind of in some ways I'm weird because I... I love to study. I love, you know, you know, to learn, to teach. It's fun. It's a passion. Um, and so in some ways, like within the, you know, and special forces is very good to me. And it's a, it's, it's much more intellectual than your kind of average pro magnon, you know, like military experience. Um, but even in that, I didn't fit in quite perfectly because I was kind of like the smart one. Um, and I probably shouldn't say that. I mean, I, but, that's like how people would describe me um then in you know in academia i don't really fit in either because with them i'm this military guy with combat experience you know been shot at multiple concussions you know hearing loss you know like just messed you know like four broken bones you know contact sports you know, and they look at me like, you know, I'm a Neanderthal. And, you know, so it's weird, not like not really fitting in either place. Um, but that's life. You know, we make, uh, you know, we choose our pathways and then we uh, we do the best we can. Sure. Yeah, no, it's a difficult path. I mean, there were lots of times where I was like, why the fucking hell am I doing this, man? I was like, I'm putting myself through some serious torture. Yeah. So you, you, were, you were talking about um, always carrying a book with you. If I was, you know, if somebody's listening to this, what books would you recommend? Like, what would be your top, let's say your top three books that you would say, these are must reads. This is, these are three books that I got the most out of. Like I took the most lessons away from. Uh, so I, you know, I'm a huge fan of George Orwell. Um, I think 1984 and Animal Farm are especially prescient. Um, I think he really understood the human character and human nature. Um, and so I definitely, recommend pretty much anything by Orwell to kind of understand humanity um, and you know and again I guess that you know that's why even in any scenarios you know you're there's always a small there's that two percent of my attention that is like okay things but okay you know who knows um, and so I would also like in terms of survival this is gonna sound really bizarre um and i would like almost never recommend like an army like manual like i'm almost believing i'm like about to say this but the u.s army survival manual is actually good um because it's very practical it's really down to earth and and it goes through shelters and fire starting and homemade weapons and homemade traps and i mean you name it, it, it's there. Signaling, it's 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 a very much. It's not like a manual. It's like how to. It's very like nuts and bolts. Mm, that sounds that sounds really good. So to end off, Frank, if you can give us some words of inspiration, if people listening to this, what is the one thing you'd want to leave them with? The one thing I'd leave them with is you can do it. Like everyone has it in them. You know, everyone has survival instinct. And if you plan properly, 
you can get through almost anything. Um, there are amazing tales of survival of people with very little training who've managed to get through extremely perilous situations just because they've kind of thought through a little bit in advance and done just a little bit of preparation. It doesn't take a lot and it goes a long way. To learn more about the art of self-reliance, our virtual coaching service, online courses, and our retreats in Thailand, head over to Primal Skills. That's with a Z.com.